Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls, the program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Oh, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Oh, this is Dr. Santosh. Oh, Dr. Yeah. Santosh does research in pediatric infectious diseases. Yeah, all right oh, there. Josh. Oh, God. There's a strange jolt of pain in my right upper quadrant radiating curiously to my suprascapular area. Oh, oh, we're doing a bit. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's, if you, oh, look at Marshall's physical exam, you might find a hint as to what might be going on with me right now. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> wow we came in hot with the intro today spitting straight bile on yeah. the mic <laughs> vitriol and bile yes yes Absolutely. the sheer gall of it all <laughs> i you know josh i was wondering you know, it, it, we're a medical podcast. We're concerned with, you know, histories and physicals and taking the, you know, getting the diagnosis and the treatment and that kind of thing. But I I was wondering, like, that etymology and everything. Like, where, like, why do we say that person has the gall? How do how does he have the gall? And, and why do we say when they're angry, they're just, oh, they're spitting bile. I mean, you can't spit. If you're spitting bile, something's wrong. That's vomit, Santosh. It's called vomit. Well, yeah, yeah. But if That's you have it. if you have bilious vomit, as as we both know, there's something to be concerned about. There's not a lot. 
about the gallbladder. It's it dates back yeah. mostly to the theory of the four humors, and <laughs> to a lesser extent, Chinese medicine and anger and uh, yeah. vitriol. <laughs> All the way back to ancient Chinese medicine and the invention of anger. <laughs> yes, uh, the invention yeah. of anger by the Chinese. But uh, <laughs> no, in fact, the the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians considered the liver to be the seat of life. Oh, okay. and And some of the earliest descriptions of the gallbladder were by... Uh, Greek physician Alexander of Trails, who was okay. the very first to describe uh, stones or calculi in the gallbladder. And he, oh. he said they were dried up humors. Um, oh, yeah, because humors meaning the liquids of the body, the fluids of the body. And he actually regarded finding gallstones in the gallbladder only indirectly in that he's like, oh, I bet this is what's causing constipation of the liver, which was the name for <laughs> jaundice. Oh, yeah, yeah. So constipation in general, where something is backed up, something is kind of stuffed up. So in this case, you have the passageways of the biliary tree that empty into the bile duct. And so if you have a blockage there, then the liver, <laughs> the liver would get constipated, not backed up with poop, but with bile. And then those pigments would leak out into the uh, bloodstream and you'd see it evidenced in the blood and then diffusing into the skin and the conjunctiva where you'd see jaundice and icterus. Um, and you'd which, also start making constipated sounds like Santosh did at the top of the episode. Yes, yeah. <laughs> painful, painful sounds. Yeah, I was trying to mimic biliary colic, which is another thing. Colicky pain is that like kind of spastic, spasmodic pain that you get in your abdomen, right? And biliary colic very specifically is when it shows up, you know, right under your right hand side ribs, like right under there and, and your tummy. And because of the way we're wired, weirdly enough, Josh, the pain can also be felt in your right shoulder, like right above your clavicle. It's very, very odd. It's strange. Uh, so this week, as part of our Back to Basics series, we are going to go over the gallbladder and <laughs> some of the... And under and perhaps and around. Through, yeah, through yeah. the parts <laughs> of the trilliary tree. Uh, <laughs> Can we credit that? Who the hell was that? Who, what was going on there? I was searching for gallbladder songs, and that's what Google <laughs> provided me. This is the miracle of the age that we live in. Like everybody else who has nostalgia about the past and stuff, do you know how hard we would have to work to find a gallbladder song? Uh, and you know, and, and also for someone who wanted to do a gallbladder song to publish it so that we could all enjoy it and bask in its glory. Let's get back into it. So, you know, of course, we get to ancient Greece and the Babylonians and Assyrians. Oh, sure. Uh, Your favorites. Yeah. Now, I, I gave you a couple challenges before we started this episode because yes. we've been doing this for 10 years now, Santosh. Yes. And, yeah. And I feel like we know each other pretty well. So mm -hmm. I didn't really send you an outline for this week. I just told you to make 10 predictions and hold the envelope up and reveal them as to what kind of things <laughs> you think we will discover and and discuss in this gallbladder okay. episode. So we're we're trying this out this week uh readers so you have to let us know if you like this. We're going to try the great Santoshini 
you know, just at, and, you know, props to Johnny Carson of old with the very racist, uh, big old feathered turban that he would wear <laughs> and make the prediction <laughs> for those of you who don't know. But yeah, we'll, we'll try to do the great Santoshini, uh, seer, seer of, of puns and predictor of outlines. Yes, we will do this. And now let us present the uh, Sage Santosh, predictor of pathology and guardian of the gallbladder as he makes his guesses about what will be covered this week. Oh yeah, maybe you can put a put in another sound break like right here, but we'll we'll see what you decide to leave in. <laughs> okay, okay. Um all right, I am seeing I am seeing that you will talk to us about ancient Egypt. Um you're going to tell me because you are a food lover, you're going to give us some yummy yummy recipes perhaps that has uh, or shows us the nutritional value of imbibing either bile or eating the gallbladder itself and possibly medicinal value since you snuck in traditional Chinese medicine in there. Um, I'm hoping and praying you, you show me something Victorian and it's going to be something really weird. Like gallbladders were super in vogue during the late Victorian era and therefore they were wearing them as hats or something, <laughs> something like this. And let's see, um, one, one last prediction. Josh, do you remember the appendix story about the person who was in the South Pole? And the doctor had to take out their own appendix. And now if you're going to go to the South Pole as a doctor, you have to take out your appendix before you go. You're going to maybe give me something about like wretched, horrid pain of the gallbladder and some crazy doctor had to perform his own cholecystectomy and it went horribly wrong or something like this. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's. Is that a fair? I mean, th- those are some, those are a few you know, treasures that you found when you've kicked over the rocks in your, in your research time. So, uh, let's, let's see how many of those I cover. Go ahead and keep a, a running tab and we can ding them as we go along the way. Yeah. (laughs) You can, you can play some gallbladder bingo. So, uh, I will, I'll give you a quick funsy one from ancient Egypt. Now, we don't know when the Egyptians discovered gallbladder disease, but many mummies have been discovered with gallstones in them. And uh, picking stones out of mummies and canopic jars is just a jolly old time for <laughs> most most archaeologists and paleopathologists. Um, <laughs> it's a It's a great pastime. It absolutely is. I I think I'd like to think that if I didn't get into medicine proper and as you and I love science and medical history, Josh, that we would have been like a mystery solving, you know, medical autopsy, paleo medical kind of duo. Like I would be the short round to your Indiana Jones. I know, always felt like I would have made a great forensic doctor and just the opportunity oh, yeah. never, never came up. Uh, yeah. It, you mean you never dug it up? 
It's a grave, uh, grave insult to my career. Yeah, uh, well. So in the Middle Ages, a lot of mystic and mythical properties were attributed to gallstones. Uh, pigmented stones from oxen were used by painters. Alchemists and apothecaries sought them for droughts and potions. Ooh. The gallstones of Persian goats and Peruvian llamas and even hedgehogs were prized as gems <laughs> to drive out poison from the body. Uh, How do you harvest a hedgehog gallbladder? Like the teeniest, tiniest little forceps, I guess? <laughs> so uh, gallstones were often used similar to uh, bezoars, which I think the only way most people would be familiar with that term is from Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bezoars are not magic. They are stones that are formed in stomachs of usually ruminants, right, George? Uh, uh, I almost called you George. What the hell? <laughs> right, Josh? The ruminants will eat just about anything, including hair, and it'll glop together with stomach acids and all this kind of a thing and become this hard rock type of thing, which will then stay in that digestive tract forever. So they, yeah, and while bezoars are stomach stones, gallstones were thought, or any stone from the body, was usually thought to have sympathetic magic-type properties. That makes sense. I mean, for a body to make a stone must have been a very, like, weird and mysterious thing. So, Because stones, you know, you shouldn't have stones in your body except for your bones, sort of, kind of, and your teeth. Now, we opened the episode with you trying to simulate biliary colic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Admirably. A for effort. Uh, yes. And the earliest account of symptomatic gallbladder disease in the written record dates back to the 1400s in Italy. Oh, uh, oh okay. So we... We actually don't have discussion of actual disease of that organ itself before that. There was, uh, I'm guessing there was jaundice and all this other kind of thing. Well, right. We knew, we knew of the existence of jaundice and bile duct disease, but we didn't really have colic described. Right. And, and we'll, okay. we'll kind of be jumping around the historical record a little bit this episode. Yeah. But Antonio Benivieni. Mm. <laughs> oh, oh, Benivieni, that's beautiful. Uh, wrote a book on the hidden causes of disease, De Abditis Nanulis Acmirandis Morborum and Sanatonium Causis. Okay. And he lived in Florence, Italy, and described the autopsies conducted on two women of noble birth who had been laid low and greatly tormented during their lives by abdominal pains that had perplexed and divided their physicians. Ooh. So laid low in this case, meaning they were bedridden, right? They couldn't get up. Yes. Although ah, Italian beds okay. could be quite high. So oh, the <laughs> maybe they were laid media. Yeah. But at postmortem, Bienvieni described a collection of small gallstones of various shapes and colors. And let me tell you, collecting gallstones is something that scientists take to like stamps or Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, they don't stay stable for very long, I believe. They're not like kidney stones, which are mineralized with calcium or phosphate or one of these kind of things. So I, I think you do have to 
preserve them somehow, Josh. They can be quite beautiful and iridescent, but they have a tendency to kind of break down and uh, crumble when they're exposed to air for too long. Most of the research into gallstones of all the countries in the world seems to have held a particular fascination for Germans. And a lot of the discoveries we're going to be talking about related (laughs) to the gallbladder are all coming out of Germany. Bacteria and gallbladders. That's Germany in a nutshell. (laughs) Well, look, if we're going to be making suppositions, uh, large alcohol intake is a contributing factor to the formation of gallstones. And there is an entire month dedicated to drinking beer <laughs> along with, sure. along with a lot of sausages and fatty and greasy foods that also contribute to gallstone formation. So maybe it was just a preponderance of evidence that okay. led them to this. Yeah. All uh, right, cool. But among the first detailed analysis of the structure of gallstones was in Johann Gottlieb and Friedrich August Walter's gorgeously illustrated Museum Anatomicum. And I sent you a little uh, postage stamp size picture of the many different kinds of gallstones that they oh, yeah. illustrated. These were and these were hand drawn. Right, you you said seventeen hundreds to eighteen hundreds, so th- this was this was hand drawn. Uh, I hope everyone does go down into our description and take a look at these. Josh, these are absolutely gorgeous. It does look like some of these. What they did was they showed the outside and then they sectioned it. In fact, I think they did that for each of them. So they actually showed how the gallstone actually forms in these ring-like structures because what happens is you get a little nidus right and then a ring of gall or i should say bile pigments and salts and everything form around it and then a little bit more and a little bit more so when you break them open or crack them in half they look a little bit like a jawbreaker (laughs) with all these layers (laughs) that's weird for me to think about (laughs) So what are gallstones made of? There's about three different kinds, but they're usually some variation of a mixture of cholesterol, calcium salts, and bile itself. Now, uh, the composition of gallstones was described by Heinrich Meckel von Hemsbach. Uh, (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And only a few years later, in 1861, uh, Friedrich Theodor von Frerichs explained <laughs> not only the composition, but some of the risk factors, which include the five Fs that we learned in medical school. And Santosh, you want to uh, throw those out there for me? Yeah, some of these are not entirely PC, should we say? It's it, Because some of them are very much are sound uh, accusatory, but it's not true. So the Fs that we memorize to think about the folks who are at risk for forming gallstones are female, fertile, fat, fair, and 40. And these five together describe a gender preference. It tends to happen a little bit more in women. Fertile, meaning they're in their childbearing years, so not super young, not very, very old. Fat, obesity, of course, contributes to the formation of these cholesterol stones. Fair, which I believe was light-skinned, but I don't know how true that is or if that just meant that you could see it easier because fair skin, you can see jaundice. And then 40 describes the age range. Again, 
uh, as well as fertile. And to which we now add a sixth F, family history. Yes. Um, now, so now we've kind of got some of the risk factors. And then along comes in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Johann Ludwig Wilhelm Thudicum, a Ooh. German expat physician and chemist who realized that gallstones tend to form when cholesterol gets oversaturated and would precipitate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I think he did this outside of the body in a test tube itself. Cholesterol will tend to cake. Uh, it, it's got a, a beautiful property of being able to solubilize fat within a liquid. So you get these beautiful little micelles and fat can suspend in water, whereas usually it would just you know come out as you usually see if you put together oil and water. But if you leave it around for long enough, the particles will start to stick together and you'll get these hard little things, not full on stones, but almost... Um, sand particles the way that most gallbladder disease was treated back then and aside from just like well hope you don't die uh was <laughs> yeah it's just like soothe the pain and then prior to the late 1800s doctors would treat diseases of the gallbladder with cholecystostomy not cystectomy which is we take the whole gallbladder out okay cholecystostomy oh yeah, is... they put a hole yeah, they cut it open. They would <laughs> okay. put a little tube in, remove okay. the stones, and drain the fluid. And that's because they were worried that removing the organ entirely would kill patients. Somebody put it in there. It must have a reason. <laughs> that's true, too. And we do have to remember around this time, opening up the abdomen and exploring and then removing organs carried with it its own massive risk of peritonitis and sepsis. So, you know, not a, not a great idea. We don't have antibiotics quite yet over here. So do you know where this first cholecystostomy was performed? It's got to be Germany. Berlin, 1882. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Uh, I love that, you know, the, the French going around, you know, it's like, we will study the brain. We will understand the impulses of the humankind. And then the Germans are like, what's in here? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Um, <laughs> what is so this? Which is which is not fair, right? Because one of our greatest, you know, the father of modern psychiatry, et cetera, being, you know, Sigmund Freud is definitely of Bavarian descent. But yeah, it's I, I love that the Germans took this like special interest in here. That makes me happy. The first laparoscopic gallbladder surgery, which is how most of them are performed today, and we'll talk about a little bit later, was performed in 1985, almost oh. 100 years later. Wow. By a German doctor. So oh, okay. <laughs> Germans love them some gallbladder. That's that's the takeaway here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just a quick little interlude. So what's going on? Uh, our liver is what makes the original bile. It'll kind of make up this fluid from the broken down pieces of our red blood cells, the, the degradation products of hemoglobin, which turns into porphyrin, and then eventually into these bile pigments. Those will combine with bile salts. What's supposed to happen is you know, you make some of it, you store it in the gallbladder. When you have a fatty meal and you get the right signals going, the gallbladder squeezes just like your regular bladder, you know, when you pee, the bile comes out, 
Okay. And it mixes around with fats and cholesterol and allows it to become soluble so that the receptors in your intestine can take it up and absorb it. And the reason we have this gallbladder, we've evolved it, is because food was kind of scarce and plenty along much of the roots of our evolution. So you store it until it's ready to go. Well, if you're obese and you're eating a lot of fatty foods and this kind of thing, you're overmaking a ton of bile. You store it, it sits there in that gallbladder, sitting there sludging. A few other risk factors later, boom, it forms into a stone. And even then, Josh, it's not generally a problem until it starts to obstruct stuff. So I guess that's what they were looking for, the, that biliary constipation. We, we talked about the five Fs earlier, and I have to tell you that's a little bit of a fallacy. because Oh, seventh F. Docs who believe that fat, fertile females in their 40s are the primary uh, holders. Sufferers, yes, yeah. <laughs> of, of gallstones are mistaken. Women do have more stones at every age group, and about 11% of women in their 40s across all nationalities have gallstones, not necessarily symptomatic ones. This is a much lower proportion than 45% of men in their upper 80s and 90s. So if you make oh, it to okay. old man age, you're carrying around some stones. <laughs> you might never know about it until someone goes looking. It's It takes another couple of steps for them to actually cause any kind of problematic symptoms. Now, pregnancy does increase the risk of gallstones, which is where that fertileness comes in. But okay. the oral contraceptive pill does not. And the reason we make that distinction is that it is not the hormones or the increase in hormones of pregnancy that contributes to the formation of gallstones. It's something else going on in pregnancy. Similarly, gotcha. although we tell people to avoid greasy, fatty foods, yeah. no particular food has been specifically incriminated in stone formation. Although, again, when we're looking at overall demographics, vegetarians tend to have fewer stones and mm -hmm. the modest, and I emphasize modest, quantities of alcohol that protect from ischemic heart disease also tend to reduce the risk of gallstones. So a little bit of drinking is actually protective. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing that happens is exactly what you said. We think about fat associated with gallstones, but the truth of the matter is when you take in a fatty meal, bile is mobilized. It, it gets out of the bile duct and out of the gallbladder. The gallbladder squeezes. And so that actually tends to reduce your uh, you know, your ability to form stones because there's not as much bile sitting in there. But there are two separate ones. There are cholesterol gallstones, uh, which can form from intestinal factors and rapid phase transitions, meaning like there's suddenly a, a, a ton of cholesterol and not enough bile salts and this kind of a thing. But for both of these, the cholesterol gallstones and brown pigment stones, aside from multiple other factors, there does seem to be a, a problem of poor bile mobility. So the bile gets stuck and sticks around for a while and allows for these stones to form. Now, some of the best information we have about ethnic differences actually comes from the U.S. and the Americas. And the highest rates of any ethnic group in the world is in indigenous people, Native Americans. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Um, after them come people of Hispanic origin, uh, who are most likely to be suffering from gallstones, then 
Caucasians. And the mm-hmm. lowest rates of all, uh, both in America and around the world, tend to be seen in the black population. And that went along with one of the Fs there with the, where the, the doctor was saying the word fair. I will put in one caveat, however, in the African-American population and the African population as a whole, if the person has sickle cell disease, so not just the trait, but the full disease where they have increased destruction of red blood cells, and likewise in other uh, you know, uh, ethnicities where you have things like spherocytosis, fragile red blood cells, and you have a lot of red blood cells breaking open and bursting, and therefore a lot of extra porphyrin and then bilirubin hanging around, then those will be high risk as well. So again, you know, it doesn't fit perfectly along if you think about other conditions. While there are clearly some racial differences, this is also a disease of affluent societies. And we know that Mm -hmm. because ever (laughs) since World War II, we've slowly been seeing an increase in uh, gallbladder (laughs) disease in Japan as they adopt a more westernized lifestyle. Yes. There's there's two things that will push in this direction. Number one is sloth basically so if you eat just a ton of crap food uh, and you have central obesity meaning the the obesity is over your stomach rather than over your hips and you have very poor physical activity and then you get insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and NASH which is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis which is fatty infiltration of the liver because you know where else is that fat gonna go that's a pretty good formula for forming these stones as well as a host of other diseases adopt an american diet get gallstones (laughs) it is and the there is another point that you had in there josh which was an aging population and we do know that japan is aging very very quickly so in the coming decades when we have more and more centenarians this may be one of the diseases that comes to the top of the list i think we should briefly mention in case the listening audience is unfamiliar your liver actually makes bile and then it sends it off to the bladder or pouch to store it now the gallbladder is an organ that we are capable of living without, but it mm-hmm. does help us to digest and secretes additional bile when we have meals higher in fat. Now, over time, when you have gallbladder stasis or bile stasis, it sits in the gallbladder for too long, it starts to form what we call in the most uh, esoteric technical medical jargon, gallbladder oh, yeah. sludge. we have such you know uh, sophisticated words oh i got a bloody nose no 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 he has epistaxis and what do we do for the gallbladder josh you got some sludge in there (laughs) zero respect for this poor little organ none so a lot of people i'm gonna bet that most of you listening to us have at least a little bit of sludge sitting around. Um, Patients in the ICU, critically ill patients, can develop sludge after a mere five to 10 days of fasting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas patients on certain antibiotics like ceftriaxone, a very common one we use, uh, can start precipitating gallstones after nine days of treatment. Luckily, we rarely use ceftriaxone for more than five to seven. 
Yeah. And this is actually in my world, Josh, in pediatrics, we have to avoid using ceftriaxone in little, little babies, kids who are less than 30 days, because they have a tendency to have jaundice anyway from numerous other factors. So if on top of that, you precipitate you know, extra bile sludge in the bladder, then you could put that kid at bad risk for toxicity from hyperbilirubinemia. Now, discontinuing ceftriaxone therapy will resolve the sludge formation. Um, Pretty quick, and there's, yeah. And there's a lot of things that can cause biliary sludge. Rapid weight loss is another mm-hmm. one. So you often see it in people who have had gastric bypass surgeries or rapidly dropped weight for a movie role or things like that. Oh, um, okay. People who have had bone marrow or solid organ transplantation also will start forming more sludge. So there's a lot of different things that can lead to it. And biliary colic, by and large, is overdiagnosed, Santosh. It, it has to oh. be a clear-cut, well-remembered yeah. attack of severe upper abdominal pain lasting at least half an hour. Oh, okay. So all of the folks that I, I know exactly what you mean by overdiagnosed now. So many of the folks that you're talking about where even if a physician may encounter someone with some dull right upper quadrant pain that kind of comes and goes, but well, okay, it's kind of up and to the right and that kind of a thing. And maybe you do an ultrasound, you see a little bit of sludge and they say, oh, yeah, they probably have some colic, but that's that's not the clinical definition. So that would be an overdiagnosis. Again, not all biliary colic needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. However, if you do have these clear-cut attacks, these patients do need specific investigation, and the gallbladder is the logical place to begin. Uh, let's take a moment for some fun trivia. Oh, okay. <laughs> What size do you suppose was the largest gallbladder or the uh, largest gallstone ever found? Oh, largest gallstone. Uh, I mean, they're they're small, Josh. It's you can't be very big. So uh, if everybody who's listening holds up your index finger, right? The width of the average index finger is about one centimeter, like that. And the gallbladder is not huge, although it can get a little bit. I wouldn't say much more than maybe two or three centimeters. Like more than that, like the gallbladder would probably tear. So the largest gallstone removed in the world laparoscopically in May of 2020. Oh, God. Was a 13 by seven centimeter gallstone. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) That's insane. (laughs) that's oh my lord no way no way really 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 hold on hold on just let's let's talk about our american audience uh really quick um okay 13 centimeters in inches is about five inches (laughs) it's a little less than half a foot (laughs) yeah oh my god half a ruler is yeah. the size of a gallstone. And and this was very oval shaped, you're saying it was 13 by 7. Yes. So it was it was twice as long as it was wide. So it was kind of like I'm guessing like cigar shaped. So it probably didn't form just in the gallbladder, it probably like kind of 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It was, it was the gallbladder at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, Whoa. So, with that fun bit of trivia, let's take a brief break and we'll come back with another fun gallbladder fact in <laughs> just a moment after these messages where you yeah. can take the time to sign up for our mailing list because we've got a live performance coming up and those of you on the mailing list find out about it first. We'll see you I, soon. I, and we're back. So uh, <laughs> I believe I promised you at least one other gallbladder yeah. fact before we carried on and started talking about some of the diseases. Do you know what the only animal, eh, the only large animal without a gallbladder is? A uh, mammal? Yes. A large animal without a gallbladder. Let's go really big. Uh, blue whale. Horses horses why shouldn't a horse have a gallbladder well i guess it's eating pr- like a hundred percent cellulose so there's no fat so in its diet. yeah horses okay. are trickle feeders they eat continuously all day long with small naps in between which is oh, the life oh got it got it and so it's s- not consuming a big meal and the small amount of fat they eat is easily managed by the liver, and therefore there's no need to store it in large quantities like humans who do have fatty meals. This is the same physiologic principle of why we tell people after having uh, gastric surgery to focus on frequent small meals instead of one large one, because you just don't have the internal capacity to handle that anymore. Got it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So if you have the type of food cycle that, well, now is a thing in in Western diet, is a big meal break, big meal break, which is how most omnivorous animals tend to feed, then you need a gallbladder of some kind. Let's talk about a couple of the other less common but still frequently seen for us diseases of the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. One, uh, pretty dangerous, primary biliary cirrhosis. So primary meaning it's the origin. Biliary Mm -hmm. meaning deals with the gallbladder and bile ducts. Cirrhosis meaning scarring. So it's a progressive disease that injures first the bile ducts and can eventually lead to liver failure. People who get this will usually be in their 50s to 70s, and most of them are women. The scariest thing about this disease is, I believe, Josh, we don't have a very good understanding of why this happens. It seems to be inflammatory or autoimmune in origin that the body's immune system decides that those bile ducts, so the the cells that line the little bile cannulae inside of the liver are very, very highly specialized. You don't see that 
epithelium anywhere else. And likewise, the cells that actually produce bile in the first place and secrete it. So for whatever reason, those areas get inflamed and the response to the inflammation is scarring. And it is insanely scary because what happens then is the bile can't get out at all from the liver. And that bile just backs up and backs up and backs up. What happens when that happens? It, it gets into our bloodstream and then into our tissues. The worrisome thing is it gets into our brain and we get encephalopathy and finally coma and death. So this is one of these things that there's not a ton of ways to get through it. There is one treatment, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, that okay. has really added life on to these people. It's not curative, but it slows things down significantly. And remember, yeah. most of these cases tend to start becoming more serious in your 50s to 70s. So if right. you're in your 70s and you can delay it another 20 years, you're doing okay. It's probably something else that will end up taking you out. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, now, it does progress through preclinical phases where nothing's going on. You just have some reactivity from some markers. So you'd have to know to look for it, meaning there'd have to be a family member. There's one of those Fs again uh, yeah. who's had this similar disease. Then you develop some abnormalities in your liver, but you don't really have any symptoms. Then you start getting symptoms. And the first thing we tend to look at is, is this NASH, that steatohepatosis or fatty liver? Is this alcohol related? So it's not one of the first things we think of, but it is on that list. Now, you might be asking yourself, how come all this stuff happens to women? That's not fair. Isn't there a male counterpart? And uh, good news, I guess. There is. <laughs> there is. <laughs> so the male predominant one is known as primary sclerosing cholangitis or inflammation of the gallbladder and ducts that goes for spasm and scarring. And that was first described by a French author in 1924. Mm -hmm. And again, it's diffuse inflammation and then resultant scarring of all the bile ducts that carry it. Now, the mean age of diagnosis for this disease is 40 years, and men get it about twice as much as women. Uh, just like primary biliary cirrhosis, it progresses very slowly, but irreversibly, and is yes. associated a lot with cancer of the gallbladder and liver. About 10% of cases end up developing or having a associated cancer. Yeah, and this is the same kind of phenomenon that we see in Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. When you have repeated inflammatory insult to a tissue, you're going to get damage and slow and kind of wretched malignant transformation that, you know, it can turn into one of these horrific gallbladder cancers. Now, Primary sclerosing cholangitis, Josh, also unfortunately is seen in childhood. So we see kids with these very rarely, but it is one of the diseases that we are trained to recognize and think about when a child has persistent jaundice, especially if they have, you know, abdominal pain going along with it. Now, the strange thing is when it starts there, it's slow and progressive and the cirrhosis part to the point where it actually starts scarring out the liver and obliterating things can take 10 to 20 years. Primary sclerosing cholangitis or PSC is the fifth most common indication for liver transplants 
in the UA. Uh, some of the ones that top it on our family feud board include, uh, let me see, alcohol. <laughs> and uh how about hepatocellular cancer okay mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. So there's and there's a couple others which we're not going to go over um but in the nordic countries all those viking okay. areas the number one indication for liver transplantation is psc for some reason vikings are more susceptible to this than any other ethnic group Right. And it is, it's not the indigenous peoples there, I don't believe, like the Sami people. And no, there's just something, there's something with uh, Scandinavian bile ducts or their Nordic yeah. tracks. Absolutely. Oh, God. <laughs> I want all of the 80s children in the audience to, to just put your hands up. I'll, I'll feel it in my soul, please. <laughs> I, I know you know it. That friggin' stupid piece of exercise equipment. <laughs> I didn't include that bit of epidemiology just for the pun, but it was a strong motivator. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. For for those who don't know and who are a little bit older, go ahead and Google Nordic Track, uh, N-O-R-D-I-C-T-R-A-C, and go look at that idiotic piece of exercise equipment <laughs> and come on back. So moving we'll on, here. moving on to treatments. Most yeah. of the time, if your gallbladder is inflamed, we call it cholecystitis. The solution is surgery. If you're having too many gallbladders, the solution is surgery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if it's the pregnancy, if it's cholestasis due to pregnancy, the solution is have the baby then surgery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is this is very much a cut to cure for most of the gallbladder conditions, but things like PBC and PSC aren't really treatable that way unless you transplant. However, we did end up finding one treatment that will help slow and affect PBC, primary biliary cirrhosis, and that one is ursodiol or bare bile. We didn't talk much about this, as you said. You didn't send me this one. I should have mentioned something about bears because urso, ursus is, is bear, you know, talking about bears, ursa major, ursa minor that you the talk Arctic. about. Arctic is just another word for bear. So the Arctic, bears, yeah. Antarctic, no bears here. So the Arctic is the place where the bears are at, essentially. <laughs> but yeah, I, I should have... Uh, put something about bears on my bingo. I can't believe I, I forgot about this. Before you do Ursodiol, real quick, I do want to let folks know that in, in pediatrics for the sclerosis and cholangitis, we do have the Kasai hepatoportoenterostomy where we're, you know the surgeon actually can go in and take out some of the damaged bile ducts, which are outside of the liver, and then use a loop of the infant's intestines to replace the damaged bile ducts. It is a palliative procedure, though. It's a bridge. So we do have some recourse to prolong these kids' life and health. But yeah, ultimately, Josh, without the ursodial, they would have been in, in dire straits. So let's talk about bare bile. Uh, now, yeah. ursodial, which also goes by the name Actigal. I love this name because Actigal <laughs> acts on the gallbladder. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's, and it's also uh, called ursodiol because it's from it's an alcohol or a solution made from bears. That's the all and the family yeah. ursidae. Ursidae <laughs> all done. It says what it is. <laughs> it says what it acts on. You do not get a drug named more appropriately. 
Yeah. Well, Ursodial, I think, was kind of shrunk down a little bit, right? Because it, it has the deoxycholic acid, which is orso uh, no, deoxy. No, no, it's no? Urso deoxycholic <laughs> acid because <laughs> okay. the main therapeutic component yeah. is bear bile. And now, again, remember how we said horses don't have gallbladders? Yeah. Bears yeah. have a special gallbladder that produces more of this specific. Urso or bare deoxycholic acid that is not found in any kind of significant amounts in any other mammals who do have a gallbladder. As wow. such, as such, it has been used in traditional Chinese medicine since 649 AD, predating even our Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians. So the Chinese have known about bear bile for a while. I could not track down the first Chinese person who made this discovery, who looked at a bear and said, I want to take that and use it. Uh, That's what I was hoping for. Yeah. 649 AD, man. That's a lot of written records to work through. No, no, no. I I totally understand. But I I was hoping that someone was going around and famously famously the chinese folk in that era would experiment anytime they had a dead animal they would experiment on every single piece of that animal so i'm sure there was a little bit of like happenstance i was like oh what if i do something with uh now with the bile here from this from this bear that i'm autopsying now, in traditional, in traditional Chinese medicine, bear bile is used for colds, used for clearing liver fire and heat. It's okay. included in medicines for things you, ranging from the liver, gallbladder, and eye disease. And we have studied it, and modern pharmacological research, or Western, has shown that it does have antimicrobial and inflammatory effects, antihepatotoxic effects. Uh, anti-tumor, anti-fever sedative effects, even some anti-convulsive effects. So it has a lot of things, but you know what? We really shouldn't be taking it out of bears. Um, oh yeah, poor poor bears. And here's the problem. I'm going to tell you something that sounds really cool, but is actually really sad. Sure. Uh, hunting bears for their gallbladders that contain the bile is no longer legal in China. So bears okay. are no longer killed for their gallbladders. That's good. Um, okay. From the 1980s, they introduced bear farms across Asia Aww. to supply the market for bear bile, which sounds like a bunch of bears in overalls and yeah. <laughs> working around, but it's not. Uh, bile is okay. routinely extracted from captive bears without killing them. A lot of Aww. them are kept in inhumane conditions, and farming was established to extract bear bile from living bears with free dripping fistula technique. Sounds like a kung fu thing. It's not. Oh, so they fistula meaning they made a hole from the bear's gallbladder out to the skin, and then the bile would just leak out. And because it's an open wound, a lot of these get infected. A lot of the bears who suffer from this do end up dying of infections or anemia or other complications from free dripping fistula technique. Cool. Um, mute and we'll try that again okay Um, all right go ahead so a lot of bears end up dying from blood loss or infection or other complications of this free dripping fistula technique so it's extremely inhumane and efforts are being made by ngos mass media and even the chinese government to end bear farming 
that is a very, very good thing. But I also know, especially for our kids with primary sclerosis and cholangitis, just the use of ursidioxycholic acid, I know that the CDC recommends it, the WHO recommends it, because it doesn't just you know, palliate the disease, it actually decreases chances of death when it's used in proper doses. So probably some of the other properties that you were talking about, that it is anti-inflammatory, etc. Now, Japanese scientists successfully managed to synthesize an artificial UDCA as far back as 1955. So there's really Yay! no reason that China still needs to be doing bear farms for sure. it. Interestingly, and more more for you, Santos, than for our listening audience who may or may not appreciate this, Actigal or Ursodiol is an orphan drug. Not a oh. drug for not a drug for orphans. No, uh, no. It's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so this means that it's it's trying to find a place, unfortunately, in economy. It it has a place in medicine, but that means that in terms of people willing to make it or fund its manufacture aren't quite there because their uh, monetary trade-off is not. Yeah. Basically no one wants to parent this drug. It would not be profitable to produce without government assistance due to the usually small population of patients affected by the condition or who would benefit from the drug. So, uh, the reason they make it an orphan drug is a matter of public policy. It kind of opens up the rights to encourage research and development. So that may be why there's still bears being farmed because it's cheaper to do that, but it really should end. And it was something that while fascinating, as I said, is sad. And there yeah. was actually research conducted in China to who still uses bear bile. And it's not something a lot of people would admit to. Uh, and I just want to tell you a couple things from this study, and then we'll close out. But okay. research assistants would approach people in public areas, and okay. they were asked to approach them as randomly as possible to get a whole broad range of demographic groups. This is from a 2010 study, as well as a 2019 one. We right. did not we did not reveal the focus of the study until questions about personal consumption to avoid priming people to name bear bile as treatments for eye infections and liver diseases, which are the traditional Chinese medicine uses. They gotcha. asked respondents to say how many of a list of behaviors they have engaged in, but not to specify which ones. And then they had a control group and the treatment group. And it's, I have visited a pharmacy. I have bought a cold or flu medicine, I have made my own medicine, and I have bought or used bare bile products. Okay. Then they interviewed a bunch of doctors and said how many of them were involved in prescribing this, which would behavior that's illegal or against hospital policy. Oh, uh, okay. And the hospital management limited all doctor interviews to the length of about a five to 10 minute appointment slot. They weren't allowed to make audio recordings because, you know, this is China and mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> used structured interviews for they weren't told the questions before the interview, but they were aware it was about bear bile and okay. about their prescriptions, patients who would request it and their views on the difference between wild bile and farmed bile and herbal alternatives. So this okay. has been studied pretty extensively. It's still used far more often than people admit. Uh, but I just thought it was historically interesting because it's unfortunately still historically going on. Let's check okay. back with your predictions. Did I meet any? Did I surprise you? 
Have you managed to figure <laughs> out what direction I'm steering us in yet? <laughs> I think we're going to try to get back to ancient China. I'm not quite sure. I I, I didn't get the uh, recipes. It looks like there was no period in time when we had people uh you know using gallbladder in this dish and that dish and what have you like that although it looks like no gallbladder isn't eaten liver is actually the most nutrient dense of the organ meats uh and people are going for something intestinal it tends to be the intestines or the liver (laughs) or rarely the kidneys gallbladder really is not and because bile is very bitter and greasy it's not something that most people want to consume okay all right. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. It's not, you know, tasty or anything else like that. And then the other thing, which was a little out outside of the uh, the usual, although we had had this uh, this before, is I didn't see any weird fashion fads or jewelry or anything related to when gallbladder was the thing. You know, like I mean, thing. the fashion fad was Germany when. Uh laparoscopic cholecystectomy was first invented it was the biggest trend let's take them out laparoscopically and other people were like no no we don't trust that let's stick to open and still other people were like let's just go back to poking a hole in with five with free dripping fistula technique in humans so the gallbladder (laughs) surgery was the fad Uh, although now it tends to be much more commonly just done laparoscopically it is not controversial uh, as yes. it was, um, yeah. it is, it is, it's uh, rare for people to keep their organs. Some people want to <laughs> keep gallstones. Wait, wait, you're not saying like, keep it as in declining surgery. You're talking about like in a jar, right? So of the organs that tend to be rem- when you have an organ removed surgically, uh, most people are not interested in keeping their gallbladder, and that's because if you're removing it laparoscopically, it's really been shredded. There's not a lot left to keep, but gallstones sure. can be on occasion uh, given if you ask your hospital real nice and fill out some paperwork. <laughs> um, okay. There's not oh. a lot to learn from them pathologically, so often you will be allowed, given your state's particular laws, to keep it. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So... <laughs> and as I said, they do have to be in some sort of a preservative, but they can be very, very beautiful and iridescent and pretty. Please do take a look at the PubMed Central article that Dr. Josh put in the show description, because that plate that you showed us from the the hand drawings of the various whole and sectioned gallstones was absolutely gorgeous i i think that's some of the most beautiful stuff that i've ever seen so that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes along with links for further reading we do have a live appearance coming up in los angeles this december more info on that coming very soon Uh, with enough time for you to purchase tickets to it if you are so inclined. And we may even have a special surprise for those of you who are on the mailing list and show up. Uh, Yay! Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, uh, bile in your diet, and spin a globe. And when you've done all of those things, happy travels.
Bye, everybody. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.